Okay. There are a couple microphones, I think, that we can, we can get to you. So um, even if it's just a question, a quick question, I think the more, the more uh, input from you today, the better. So uh, don't, don't be shy. Maybe you don't usually ask or say something, but maybe today is a good day to take your first shot at spe speaking in the microphone at Crucible. You can do it. And if not, Irby will just do it. He'll, t he'll take it. Where are we at? Okay, over here. I noticed a contrast between um, the disciples and how the disciples started following Jesus um, when he was in the point of gathering his power, or what they might be thinking of gathering his power, but um, that this man on the cross came to Jesus when Jesus seemed to be in one of his weakest times that he saw Jesus weak and yet still believed. Um, where, and then the fact that the disciples were so far away, um, and some of them, I'm assuming, had already denied who he was at this point in time. Mm -hmm. But here's this man seeing him weak and willing to, to get behind him when he's dying. Yeah. It, it, yeah, you, you might th think this is one of the greatest... Um, stories of faith in the Bible, actually, because the Jesus that's being presented to this thief is a Jesus clearly devoid of power. He's emptied of power. He has nothing to offer, and yet he sees a king and a kingdom. He sees that. It is, it, that is a really good observation, yeah. Okay. Uh, recently, I uh, was listening to someone give a commentary on the temptation of Jesus and how that was an attack on his identity. Like, if you are the son of God, then yeah. do this, then do this. And this feels like a, it echoes that very same thing, like the devil tempting Jesus. Every, everyone is saying it. If you are the Messiah, if you are the Messiah, you know, mm -hmm. save yourself, mm -hmm. save yourself. And, uh, you know, that, that also brings that, that, that one criminal into context because... Even in the questioning of identity, you know, the, the criminal who believed is like, listen, I'm a criminal. You're a criminal. This guy? He's not. Yeah. That, that's not him. Yeah. What an interesting observation. I mean, I wonder, I, I don't know that I've ever thought about this as a temptation moment for Jesus. You know, these, this last round of mockery. And maybe he's just like, you know what? That's enough. I'm going to get down and I'm going to whoop some behind. <laughs> you know, I changed my mind, you know. It's just like the last straw, you know. It does seem like in the narrative that that's sorted out in Jesus' soul in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that private moment where he's like, I don't really want to do this. And if there's any other way, can we, can we let's be creative here, Father. Uh, surely there's another way to atone for the sins of the human race. But not my will, but yours. And I will drink this cup of wrath this cup of suffering, if you ask. You know, Moltmann says that Jesus dies first for his father and second for us. Mm -hmm. This narrative that puts us in the center, like Jesus dies for us, he dies for our sins, isn't quite right, actually, theologically. Jesus died for his father. He died because his father asked him to. It, it was an act of obedience and worship. 
And in that way, actually, it sets an example for us as human beings. This, this, this story, this moment is very human because it's so filled with agony, an agony he did not deserve, and yet to be fully human, he must suffer it. Even abandonment, or what, what theologians call this God-forsakenness. You know, it doesn't occur in Luke, but in Matthew and Mark, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? C.S. Lewis says, you know, unless Jesus experiences abandonment, he doesn't really know what it's like to be human. Doesn't that ring true? He can't really be, he can't really, oh, okay, C.S. Lewis gets a couple snaps there. Yeah, he should, I suppose. <laughs> uh, you know, he, you can't say that Jesus was fully human if he'd never experienced abandonment. That's what it, that's part of what it means to be human. What else? Any other thoughts or questions? Okay, yeah, back there, Creed. Hey. Um, hey. <laughs> so I, I'm just wondering at the dynamic here a bit because, you know, he's in like this sort of torturous, you know, journey. And then in the middle of it, he's just like, stop. And then he takes like this, it's almost like a, like he says a very, uh, like there's a lot in the statement you feel like there's a lot of, like there's quite a bit going on and he takes this time to address these people yeah. about, you know, all this that he's saying. Um, I, I don't know, like I'm a little curious, I guess, about this dynamic, um, if you feel. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy that in this, he's in, he's in such um, physical anguish and his body's already so broken down from the beatings. So crucifixion would have been a common way to die in the Roman Empire. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of execution that you reserve for people that you want to publicly shame and to say, don't ever try to do that again. Um, a very famous would-be Messiah called Judas the Maccabean, or Judas the, the Galilean would have actually been executed in Jesus's boyhood and actually on the road near his house, he would have seen this guy and his followers crucified. On So he's, he's, he would have been familiar with crucifixion, but typically the way it would have worked is you just kind of lead them out, you pin them to a cross, and they die from suffocation is really what happens. So slow blood loss and trying to go up and down on these, these pressure points of stakes in your feet and stakes in your wrists to go up and down until finally you suffocate. And so it, can ta it, can, it would take, in some cases, days to die. It's just a horrific, horrific way to die. But of course, Jesus has this extra torture thrown on, the, the cat and nine tails ripping off his back. He would have been mocked and scourged and tried and thrown around and no sleep, uh, beaten with fists and also beaten with whips. And so his body is so depleted that he can't even carry the crossbeam there's no energy left, which is why we have the entry of this other character, Simon of Cyrene. And yet, at that place of like total physical depletion, he still has words for these weeping women. He still has stuff to teach even, a warning to give. I think that's incredible. And it's something I'm actually gonna talk, say more about. Okay. Yeah, and then there. Yeah. Um, Kind of sharing uh, in uh, the group here, 
a few minutes ago. I guess the past couple weeks I've been thinking about the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, since you know, a few weeks ago we had Easter. And I was thinking about just a week before his crucifixion, just about a week before his crucifixion. You know, he was coming into Jerusalem and people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And it probably people back then thought he was going to come and set up the Davidic kingdom, that yeah. he's going to overthrow the Romans and, and we're now going to rule and reign. And then a few days later, he's standing in front of a Pontius Pilate as a beaten mess. Mm -hmm. And people probably just said, oh, go ahead, crucify him. He's worthless. And it kind of shows you the filthiness of humanity because yes, we want Jesus on our terms. Mm -hmm. You know, we want him to be the conqueror. And he eventually will mm -hmm. conquer mm -hmm. all evil. But at that time, they want him to, be, to meet their needs now. Yeah. But God said, no, he's got to be the crucified Savior. And that's who we got to accept yeah. and submit to, the one who will pay the price for our sins. So just yeah. this kind of insight I had about the whole Yeah, well said. That's well said. The crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, I mean from, from the crowd's perspective, I suppose it's sort of like a dream that has died. You know, this belief that maybe he was going to be the one. And clearly he isn't. I mean, he lost. Clearly he isn't. And it does, it does, it does maybe uncover the, the, the mob mentality, you know. Mob humanity is rarely correct. It is not sophisticated. It cannot think deeply. It only reacts. And so they miss this greater possibility, even one that he predicted, to say that he would rise. That this temple, he said, I'll tear down in the three days, I will rebuild it. And they're just not even awake to that. Even his own friends, even his own, his closest friends are not like, okay, this is, he told us this was going to happen. We're ready. They're not. They're gone. The only people left are the women. Really good. One or two more? Yeah, Thomas. Um, something about the soldiers kind of really scared me. Um, where these soldiers are given this human-made position of power, um, and then they feel like they can say or do like whatever they want, and it was—it almost came off to me like it was funny to them. Yeah. Um, and I wonder how, like, certain positions of power that like I've been given or like we've been given, how that has like twisted my own mind into thinking I deserve something or thinking I can say something or thinking I can speak into something. Um, and if I were in that position, would I have done the same thing? Yeah, it's the, the soldiers are an interesting uh, group in the text because it's not, they do have power. They have power over Jesus's life in this this moment to some degree uh, but of course they're just following orders this is this is a a regime that is much bigger than them right and this wouldn't have been the first man they've crucified it's their job it's their job so there is a culpability that goes beyond the soldiers that is also present and maybe the, the conversion, if you will, of the centurion is a kind of representation of that middle management, you know, that is kind of like, oh, uh-oh, 
have we done the wrong thing here? You know, I was just doing what I was told. I was just following orders, and yet, um, oh, my, oh my God, have we, have we done something horrible here? I actually think, and I may, I may comment on this in a minute, I actually wonder if that phrase, forgive them, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing, is primarily targeted to the soldiers. We, we want to, to globalize that. We want to universalize it. And, it. and it should be, theologically. It is universalized. It does apply to all of us. And yet, in that moment, I see him seeing them and recognizing they, don't, they have no idea who they're killing. And, you know, he, he is asking for a stay of execution against them, of judgment against them for, for this greater crime that they're not aware that they're doing. Let me, let me uh, enter here. Um, uh, pro- probably the greatest living performance artist is a woman called Marina Abramovich. She did a, um, she did a show in... New York's Museum of Modern Art in 2010 called The Artist is Present. Has anyone, has anyone heard of her or, or heard of that show? Um, and this is what she did. So performance art is just art. The artist is the art. So they're doing something with their body physically. And she, she chose in 2010 to open this show where she would sit in a chair for eight hours a day for the length of the show, which turned out to be more than three months. And so she sat in one chair for eight hours a day for something like 750 hours she sat in this chair. And the idea was she wanted to have another chair directly across from her, which was open to whomever wanted to sit in it. And the only rules, the only parameters is that nothing could be said and no gestures could be made. You simply, they, the person simply had to make eye contact with her for as long as they sat in the chair. Um, originally, the, the, the curators, the people that were putting together the piece, they told her, look, you just need to be prepared for, for the fact that you're going to sit in this chair for hours and hours and hours alone and no one's going to sit across from you because people can't, this is New York City, people can't, they're not going to stop and just do nothing for a period of time. And the, and the people could sit as long as they want. Well, something remarkable happened. Not only did people come, and not only was that chair filled for all 750 hours, but people lined up. They slept outside the museum. They waited for days to be able to sit in a chair across from this woman and just be looked at by her. There's footage of it that, it's actually quite remarkable footage. I think there's even a documentary done about the piece, The Artist is Present. And it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's haunting, it's powerful to watch this woman just look into the eyes of total strangers. What she would do is she would sort of sit in her chair and she would look down, close her eyes, compose herself, and then someone would come, sit across from her, and then she would look up and lock eyes with this person for as long as they wanted. Of course, it was an extraordinary feat of strength to do this for one day. Try it for one hour with another human being. It'll break you down. 
I actually saw the footage of the very last person that she, that she has this encounter, this kind of seeing experience with. And when, when she finished, the end of the whole show, when she finished, she collapses. She collapses. But what was remarkable is not just that people wanted to do this, and some people sat for hours with her, and some people just sat for a few minutes and ran off. But people were broken down by it. They would laugh or they would weep person after person after person just by being seen by another human being would break apart into a million pieces. You could almost see some sort of like unraveling and some sort of healing thing that was happening between her and these people. It was an extreme act of vulnerability and also seeing, just seeing. I recently read, in a, uh, I, I read a book about parenting, and the, the guy suggested that you, should, you shouldn't make eye contact with your kids. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, so parents, here's a tip for you. Uh, you don't always want to make eye contact with the kid. And here's, here's, here's what he was saying, and I actually think there's, some, there's, there's a point here. He's saying, look, eye contact can be very intimidating. Eye contact can be a way of asserting power, you know. Uh, so if you, if you, like, stare down Junior... Uh, it's just a way of saying, come on, you need to do what I say. It's, it's sort of like, it's, it's overbearing. Uh, are you with me? Anybody? No? Yeah? No? Yes? It is true. It's kind of true. And so at first I didn't like it. I was like, well, of course make eye contact. It's human. That's what we do. But then, but then you know, his suggestion was like, in certain situations, it's better to just sort of like go do something with your kid if you want to work with them and hear their voice and have them feel free to talk and so on. And, and, that, and I think there's, there's truth to that, but, but it only, only makes the point, which is to look deeply into someone's eyes is somehow penetrating. It's, it breaks us down, you know. I used to do this exercise with groups. I, I, we don't have time because it's crucifixion. But if, uh, if I had time, I'd make you do it right now. And I just ask groups to get in pairs and just look at each other. And I ask them to do it for 60 seconds. And people can't do it. They can't do it. They either start goofing, like immediately. And I'll tell them, you can, do not make jokes. Do not move. Do not do anything. Just look into this other person's eyes. People can't do it. Something happens to us. We begin to unravel. It's too much. It's too much. We're, we, we begin to be seen, understood maybe at some level. We don't, we don't want to be understood or we're uncomfortable being understood. And I think actually what I'm watching when I watch Abramovich do this piece, I'm watching love. Love mm, in a different sense. Love in this deeper connotation because it's about wanting to really see that person, to really know them, to understand them, to have some kind of deeper connection. Of all the things that this story is, of all the things that happen in this story, I have no choice this morning but to acknowledge that Jesus sees people. In the darkest hour of his life, at a time where he had every right to focus on his own pain, his own cause, his own calling, his own journey, his own assignment, he's still looking at other people, seeing them 
for who they are. Seeing their pain. Caring about their pain. Here is this man, so broken down by this beating, so, so uh, uh, emasculated by his stripping, so humiliated by this mockery, and yet, even in the, 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 the shell, the puddle of a man that he is, he looks up and sees these women weeping over him. And he has something to say to them. He sees that thief on the cross yearning for salvation, wondering if there's a way out for him, wondering if there's some kind of forgiveness on the other side of this life for him. He sees that man. He sees those soldiers uh, casting lots for his clothes. He sees the mistake that they're making. He sees the, the way that they're going to realize at some later date that this one we killed wasn't like the other ones. He knows. He's projecting the effect on their psyche that this moment is going to have. Can you imagine being one of those soldiers? And all of a sudden, I mean, we're talking 10, 20 years later when the Roman Empire is taken over by this man and his followers. The whole world has been turned upside down by this Jesus whom you killed. He, Jesus has the capacity to look at these soldiers and say, oh God, this is going to be really hard on them. Father, go easy on them. He sees. And if it's true, when I watch Abramovich look into the eyes of a total stranger and see them break apart and weep, if that is watching the art of love, then that is a child's finger painting, and this is the Sistine Chapel. This, okay, let's, let's, let's take a second and let's go into the, the, the epistle of 1 John. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. It is the moment in human history when love becomes strong, not a feminized virtue like it was in the Greek world not some sort of second-rate, weak virtue. But it becomes almost deified. It becomes God Himself, a revelation of God Himself. It becomes the chief virtue of all other virtues. It is a moment where God is revealed as love. It's the moment that all other moments of love will have to now be judged by. Do you understand? Every time anybody uses the word love, for the rest of civilization, it now must be measured by this. This is what John says in his epistle. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And anyone who does not love remains in death. This is 1 John 3. And anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer and you, do not, you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for each other. Ah, 
If I preach this morning on love, if I talk about love, what a, what a heartwarming thing. And everyone surely will agree with me if I talk about love. Not this. Not this. We ought to love like this. And if what I want to do this morning is I want to dare to take a closer look at what it means. And yes, part of it is this God-forsakenness for Jesus to feel abandoned. This is the climax of the zenith of the fullness of his humanity. And, and in one sense, when we look at the cross, um, it's not easy to relate to, right? I mean, uh, none of us have been executed, I don't think. Uh, that would be kind of interesting. Uh, but it's hard, in one sense, it's, it's, it's a place where we simply cannot relate to Jesus, and it feels like a thing that only Jesus does, only Jesus can do. And yet, and yet at least if, if, we, if we use John's epistle as an example, a, a scriptural mandate to us, it's the place where we must most closely relate to him, where his humanity being stripped, his humanity coming to its fullness is somehow supposed to be something we understand and in turn his love in suffering is something we are supposed to do or emulate to be like him this is the way paul said it to be like him in his sufferings to fellowship with him in his sufferings so as to somehow attain to the resurrection see resurrection is not something we grasp for resurrection is not something we try to go get Crucifixion is something we try to go get because that's where love resides between us. And at least according to Paul, so the resurrection is something that I hope one day to attain because I've experienced community, fellowship, koinonia with Jesus and his suffering. He says, forgive them, they're ignorant. Does anyone know any ignorant people? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you know an ignorant person? And if you don't, you're the ignorant person. Um, it's kind of true if you think about it. Um, he says, mercy for the ignorant. Have mercy on the ignorant. Do you do that? Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. In the darkest moment of his life, he cares about them. Not himself. In, in the greatest moment of his own pain, he's concerned about the life and the experience and the understanding of other people. Do you do that? Today you will be with me in paradise, rewarding faith and the desire for relationship, not human achievement, not human righteousness. This guy sucks. He hasn't done anything right his entire life. Might be an exaggeration, I don't know, but let's just, let's just use that. He hasn't done anything right his entire life, and Jesus still has a place for him in his kingdom. Do you do that? Are you like that? And into your hands I commend my spirit. When the body is racked with pain and suffering, he entrusts the care of his spirit to his father. Do you do that? It's all about love but it's a different kind of love. It's a different frame for the word completely. 
So I want to say three things about love. The first is that this kind of love sees people. This is what I've already kind of alluded to. Even when we are in pain, it chooses to see the pain of others, the struggle of others. You know, something interesting has happened. Uh, it feels to me like something interesting has happened even, even in the last few weeks. There's been a couple of conferences that have dealt with race and race relationships in the church and some prominent white preachers. So people who, in general, their audience is going to be predominantly white, dominant culture, have been asked to speak on issues of race within the church. And so I don't know these people, but let's just assume... Uh, this has not been central to their preaching or their understanding of Scripture, and so they, they're tasked with this talk, and so they dive in to both see their own failure in darkness, but also to try to understand a theology, a proper theology of reconciliation within Scripture, of the nations, the ethnos of the kingdom of God, the future reign of God through the nations, and they stumble on some things which have been around, ideas have been around for quite a while, but maybe have not been preached from their pulpits. And what's interesting is that these white people, these white men, who have kind of gone on to say what I think is sort of plain theology, obvious theology, of both multi-ethnicity and racial justice, are getting the living hell beat out of them by their white following. All of a sudden, they're drawing all of this ire from white people who cannot bear to be criticized in this area. They blame them for doing bad exegesis or they hide or run away from what is plain historical, sociological, anthropological, and ecclesiological church truths. And I, I just, can't understand it. Why can't white people hear about black pain without being defensive? We know racism is real. Why can't we face it in ourselves, in our systems, in our communities? Maybe, maybe you're white and right now you're thinking about getting up and walking out, you know. I dare you. Help yourself. In fact, was it last week? I don't know, two weeks ago? Lucas was just talking about the pain that some of our community experience because of yet, again, uh, the loss of another black life, which was unjust. And he wasn't trying to come hard or anything like that. He's just saying people are in pain about that. And, and some people got up and walked out. Remember that? Anybody over here in this area? If you're here today, God bless you. Good, good for you. You're back. Uh, I doubt it, but... <clears throat> you know, stormed out, you know. I mean, is that... What is wrong with us that we can't even take a second to just look at the pain of another person? 
I mean, he was just saying, he literally was just saying, people are hurting this morning because of this, and we can't see it. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're white, and this troubles you, and you're, even now you're sort of frustrated or dealing with, oh, God, why is it it's divisive, or why is he talking like this? I'm just going to tell you, this is not the place for you. I'm going to save you the trouble. Go get mature. Go study the Bible. Work your stuff out. But this is not the place for you. And maybe Lucas doesn't feel like he can say that. And maybe the people of color who are leaders in the movement don't feel like they should say that because they need to be gracious. But I'll say that. You, 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 you need to go work that out somewhere else. You need to take that toxin, that poison, somewhere else. Because as far as I'm concerned, it's not just that racism is real. It's that it, it poisons us. It's in us. And if we're not willing to see the sin in our own lives, forget about just that one sin, any sin. If you're saying this far and no more to God, don't come talk to me about this problem or that problem that exists inside my own soul, then you are not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're, we're talking about basic truths of both humility and the doctrine of sin. You, you, you don't, to, to be like, I never did anything wrong. I never hurt anybody. Are you sure? You're so sure. And we're going to ask everybody that you've ever known that's not white if you've ever done anything to harm them. Are you so sure that they're going to say, now that white person's amazing. They've never done anything wrong to me. You sure? Are you that confident in your own righteousness in this area that you don't want to hear it? That you can't be open to the pain of others who are supposed to be your brothers and your sisters in Christ Jesus? I'm saying this isn't the place for you, not because I, I'm laying down some sort of marker on some issue, but because I'm saying you're not really serious about Jesus. And you're not really serious about love. Love. Why can't we really do it? It's because we are afraid. It's fear. And listen, if you're white this morning, I just want you to hear me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of talking about it. Don't be afraid of people's pain. Don't be afraid of people even saying you've done wrong. That's good, because it could liberate you. Don't you want to know if and where you have sinned against God and against your family? Wouldn't you want, wouldn't that be a cause for rejoicing to recognize where you have sinned so that that can come under the redemption of this moment, this very moment, the atonement of Jesus? Don't you know that when He dies, He dies for all the sins of humanity, including racism? He dies this day for that sin, which is still in us. And if I can figure out in my own life or in the life of our organization or the life of our community, or if you can figure out in your own life a way in which that sin has sort of uh, uh, taken hold of you and, and you can confess that sin and bring it into the light and then you can see the, 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 the effect, the glory, the power of the cross to cover over that thing, is it, doesn't that not expand the glory of God in your life? The lordship of Jesus in your life, is that not cause for rejoicing? You see, it is. It is. 
And so when white people act all aghast, you know, how can you bring it up? And it's just a blindness which is continuing to poison only them. This is, I'll take you back to 1 John. And some of you need to just really hear this this morning. This is, this is the word of God for you. There is no fear in love. 1 John, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Listen, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. If white people are going to run around and be afraid to face their own sin, their own darkness, be afraid to face the sin and darkness of their people and their people's people and their fathers and their mothers and the, and, and, and the systems that have been created. If we can't even just see that in humility, if we can't just admit, I mean, maybe we're going to disagree on the particulars, but if you can't admit that that has happened, if you cannot do that, then you, you're just living in fear. And there is no, there's no possibility for love inside of you. This is, this is, what, this is what John is saying. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. I'm reading the Bible. We're clear on that. It's not me. This is the Bible, okay? And me. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen... This is seeing. This is what I'm saying. This is, this is what happens at the crucifixion. Jesus sees people. He sees their pain. Even in his own pain, he sees their pain. And if you cannot love your brother or sister whom you have seen, you cannot love God whom you have not seen. And he has given us this command. John says, anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. You must. You must. And by the way, the request, what is the, really the request that people of color are making in our time? It was the request that they have been making ad nauseum for hundreds of years. What is the request? It is simply to stop hurting me. Stop hurting us. Stop damaging us. And I'm going to ask you, if you love the person who says to you, would you mind stop hurting me? Is that not something you need to hear, you want to hear? If the, if the primary relationship with that person is love, are you not eager to hear in any way in which you are harming or hurting that person? And it's not just about justice. I know that, that sometimes is the framework. It's not just about justice to do what is right. It's about freedom and wholeness for all people. It's about you not being mean or cruel or harming people. It's about freedom for you as a white person or a dominant person or a person of power or a man of any shade. This is partly why we need to listen to black and people of color, the voices that are calling for an end to racial oppression or violent bias or systemic abuse of power because it's love, because actually their, their call for that is a loving call. They're loving us. And white people too often they hear hatred. Or they say something, something ignorant like reverse racism. And I just want to sort that out for you. Um, first of all, there is no such thing as reverse racism. We just, we, you need to work with your terms here. 
So racism has to do with power. It is the exercise of power. It's when the people who are dominant and in power have a racial bias. Stay with me. So the people in power who control things like, I don't know, the housing market, loans, uh, policing, the judicial system, the education system, the healthcare system, when those people in power have a bias toward a certain ethnicity or a certain ethnic group, that, that bias, because it has power, is going to be worked out in, in unjust ways in the systems that they create. Can you understand? And that we call racism. So can people without power have racism? No, you can't. It's like definitionally impossible. Can people without power in minority ethnic groups have ethnic bias or racial bias? Sure, but we need to get the terms right. If you're white, you've never been the victim of racism, you understand? Unless you're in Kenya or something like that, and the people in power are black people, and they wrongfully accuse you, or throw you out of Starbucks, or racially profile you, or something. <laughs> then you will have understood racism. If you are the minority culture, then you can understand racism. Do you understand? But if you're the majority culture, you can't. So that's the first problem. But I mean, still, to, for, to ask white people to give up their bias and their dominance is like a cultural intervention. Anybody, anybody know what an intervention is? Anyone ever had an intervention? Do you know what an intervention is? What's, a, what's an intervention? It's like something's going really wrong in your life. You're just off the, off the rails. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's, I don't know. You're just, whoa. And everyone sees it but you. Do you understand this, this dynamic? Anybody? No? Intervention. You need an intervention. So all your friends, they're talking about it. They're getting together. Mike, am I right? You know what an intervention is. Thank you. Okay. So everybody sees you're off the rails. You're drinking too much. Just, you have a problem. You have a problem, right? That's what you say. And you got to get the whole group together. You got to get all the friends, all the family, and you got to like sit the person down. And does it always work? Guys, Mike, does it always work? No, it doesn't work. Sometimes people are like, I don't believe it. I don't see it. Everyone's telling you. Everyone who loves you is there. Like, it's a problem. Please believe us. Please. And our, I mean, let me, let me just stick with it, Mike. Are interventions fun? Is it just you just love doing them? And let's just, is there anybody we can do an intervention for? No, it's not. You, you don't enjoy it, right? In fact, it's probably tiring, I assume. But why do you do it? And it's probably because you love that person or care about that person. You want what's best for that person. So it might feel like an ambush if you're the interventioner, the intervener, I don't know, the intervened, intervened, the intervened, I don't know. Uh, it's an uncomfortable gift, let's call it that. It's an uncomfortable gift. And it doesn't mean you're worthless. Listen, white people... People, listen, black people are not saying you, you suck and you're terrible and God doesn't love you and you have no worth. That's not what they're saying. And not, that's not what they're saying in general. They might be saying that to you personally. I don't know, but they're not, that's not what they're saying in general. I just finished a, a sort of a, 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 a thorough history of the Black Panther Party, a book on the, the Black Panther Party. And there's a moment uh, which kind of struck me 
uh, if some, some of you know that if you know the history of the civil rights movement in our country, you'll know that, that part of what came out of King's work, which is nonviolent, you know, his Southern Christian leadership uh, was, was really rooted in nonviolence. And, and a lot of the driver for the civil rights movement would have been students, it would have been college students. And the, the college arm of like that nonviolent movement was called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, called SNCC. And after uh, Martin King was assassinated, after he was killed, um, SNCC, who was led by a guy called Stokely Carmichael, they were really wrestling with their own sense of identity about being nonviolent. Like, should we stop being nonviolent? This is, this is the, the moment in, in, in our history where, where kind of black power, the idea of black power, began to eclipse this idea of nonviolent protest. And so, actually, uh, SNCC decided to join the Black Panther Party. And so because, because Stokely Carmichael was more of a militant voice, and of course the Black Panther Party was a very militant voice in that period of history, I mean actually militant to the point of saying we need to police the police and we need to arm ourselves and protect our homes and uh, maybe even overthrow the government, like a true revolutionary kind of force. And so SNCC, which had been nonviolence, based in nonviolence, decided we're, they're gonna join the Panthers. And there's a, what, what struck me was, was when Carmichael gets up to give a speech at this sort of partnering, this joining between these two movements. Um, so the, the most militant voice possible that you can imagine, both in its space and history and in that uh, uh, sort of community of people would have been someone like Rap Brown or Bobby Seals or Huey Newton or Stokely Carmichael. And this is what Stokely said that day. He said that someone had, had accused him of hating white people. And he said this, he said, I don't hate white people. Why would I ever hate someone because of the color of their skin? I'd never do that. We just don't want to be oppressed anymore. So even that is a sort of misunderstanding. Even the most militant voices still are not campaigning for hate against white people. It's just a perception. It's a lie that people have. And honestly, guys, if there is any sin in your life, don't you want to examine it? Don't you want to see the cross free you from it for the sake of yourself and your children and your family and others? You know, even in my own life, you know, there, there's, even, even, even recently, some of my closest friends have, have had to confront me on my own blindness and, and misuse of power and, and, and shaping things in a way that, that make a disadvantage and, and weaken the voice of people of color, even in our community, in our movement. And I'm going to tell you something, it's not like fun, it's embarrassing. You know, there's no high fives going around, like, awesome racism, yeah, in me, yes. No, it's, it's embarrassing, it's, 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 a, it's a disappointment to, to God, to them, to me, and we have to work through that relationally, but it's a gift, can you not understand? I love them more. They love me enough to say. It's, it's not just welcomed, it's cherished, that kind of input. It should be an occasion for joy. Where sin abounds, Paul said, grace abounds more. 
You want more grace in your life? You got to be willing to see wherever there's darkness and let Jesus come into it. This is just one, one example. It's just one example. And where we are defensive and closed, we're just shutting off God. And we're actually refusing to love the ethic of love. And, and what, 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 are, what are people of color asking for in our time? They're asking for an end to oppression, which is to love God. That's, that is a core message of the scriptures, to end oppression, wherever it is. Again, if you cannot get on board with that, I question your faith in Jesus. That is the heart of God, to end oppression. Where strong people dominate and hurt weak people, that is, that is, that is against the heart of God. And so to call for an end to that pleases God. It pleases God. It is to love God. But it is also to love the oppressed, the weaker one, the marginalized person who has had their power stripped or their dignity stripped or their worth stripped. That it, it, it is to love them, to stand up for them, to speak for them, is to love them. And so it is an act of love to God. It is an act of love to them. And guess what? It is also an act of love to the oppressor to the person who may be blind to the fact that they're using their power in this awful way. It's loving to them as well. And to act like it's anything else is a diabolical trick. To turn it in, oh, that's just political, or, or that's divisive, or whatever you want to say, whatever, whatever, whatever sheen you want to put on it, which makes it something other than profound love, cruciform love. Now, I'm not saying everyone that ever says anything critical about this issue is, is saying it with a heart of love. But I'm saying that the act itself, divorced from the intricacies or idiosyncrasies of the people delivering it, is always love. And it should be welcomed as such. I am not loving God or myself or my brothers and sisters or my children if I am defensive and closed about sin that I have inherited. Why would I do that? If I do that, the devil wins. The devil wins. And listen, let's go back to John. This is why Jesus came, to destroy all the works of the evil one. What happens on this day besides a great man being killed, besides the Son of God being crucified? What happens on this day? It is the dismantling of the kingdom of darkness. Something cosmological also takes place on this day. The beginning of the end of the kingdom of evil happens on this day. Jesus disarms through his death and through his act of great love the power of, of oppression, poverty, racism, avarice, lust, hatred, all the whole, the whole pantheon of horrors. He works to destroy on this day. They are no longer inevitable but we have to appropriate those gifts. So much power was delivered on that day in spite of looking like the opposite. That's my next thought. This kind of love does not just see people, but it is strong because it is vulnerable. Strong because it is vulnerable. I was looking again at Corrie ten Boone's The Hiding Place, that remarkable book which tells the story of their, her and her sister's experience in a Holocaust concentration camp and she tells this story of her sister her and her sister Betsy 
and the medical examinations they experienced. So I'm thinking in my mind, there is so much vulnerability here in Jesus. And at least for me, this week, it was summed up by his nakedness. It was somehow encapsulated by his nakedness. I mean, aside from all other horrors of the experience, can you just imagine for a second just being stripped naked and thrown into the public square and mocked? That's it, just that. Anybody want that? Anybody want to touch that with a 10-foot pole? Anybody? Just the stripping, the public nakedness, so dehumanizing, so profoundly horrific. This is what she writes. I, I, I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him, and now such happenings had faces and voices. This is her talking from the concentration camp. On Fridays, the, rec the recurrent humiliation of medical inspections. They would make them all have medical inspections. We had to maintain our erect hands at our sides positions as we filed slowly past the grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine, nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of those mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible left, leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known, I had not thought the paintings that carved crucifixes showed at the least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on the other Friday morning, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces around us now. And I leaned toward Betsy, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out, sharp and thin beneath her blue molted skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. And ahead of me I heard a little, a little gasp. Oh, Corey. And I never thanked him. This naked man as weak as any human being has ever looked, is dispensing ministry, warning, giving forgiveness. And finally, in his death cry, the naked power of creation itself is released. Stripped to nothing, humiliated, he is revealed as strong. This is the paradox, the irony of vulnerability, even in our own lives. The, the thief seizes power somehow when you come into your kingdom. What is he saying exactly? A king who is about to come into his kingdom? What is he seeing? The centurion at the end that says this, this, this was not a normal man. What is this? What are they seeing? 
And it is the paradox of the cruciform life. It may look weak to forgive your enemies, but it is not. It may look weak to be wronged and not fight back, but it's not. It may look weak to care for people who continue to hurt you, but it's not. And in the end, all this display of weakness, at the end of it, he unleashes this naked power that the world had not encountered since it was made. Listen, the word there, the word when it says he cried out, this last gasp when he cries out father is actually the 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 the, the verb there is 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 apocalyptic it's if, if if we had time to unpack it to explain it it has something to do with the world itself being broken apart it's not just a cry or a whimper it is a shout it's the same word that's used when the when the when the lead angel comes to bring judgment upon the earth and with a cry in Thessalonians, when it says that the, 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 with the trumpet blast, this cry, that they will say, now is the time for the world to be judged. That's this verb. Because the crying out that Jesus does in the death throes, his death cry, is not so small and sheepish and quiet. It is actually the unleashing of something apocalyptic. And when this one, this weak, stripped, broken man, when he cries out, Father, when he shouts to the world, Father, listen, the sun is darkened, the earth begins to move. We're talking about, listen, if you don't understand, if you're not there yet in school, we're talking about plate tectonics. We're talking about magma at the center of the earth, moving the massive plates of the earth so that the earth quakes. That's what an earthquake is, you understand. It's, it's, it's something so large. That the earth itself felt that scream and responded. In, 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 in the other gospel accounts, actually tombs are broken open and dead people get up and walk out. Not all of them, but some. I'm not sure who got that privilege. There's actually quite a bit of speculation about that, like who, gets, who got out that day, but there, were, there are stories of when, that, when the earth shook and the, and the tombs broke open on the sides of mountains, actually dead people came out of those tombs. They heard the voice of their creator. The earth itself, which had not heard that voice since it was created, heard and responded. You tell me, is that, is that weakness or is that strength? What were they witnessing? And the temple, this place where religious life was supposedly centralized, and the temple, which was sort of these concentric circles moving inward, you know, the, the, the court of the Gentiles and the court of women and then, the, and then the, the more holy people and then the holy place and then the holy of holies right there in the middle, which is where you keep the ark and the presence of God supposedly dwell. And you only go into that room, that tiny room, once a year. And it could only be the high priest that goes into that room. This is all in Hebrews, the expression of Jesus being our high priest who breaks into that room on this day. No one's allowed in there. Except for one day a year, Yom Kippur, the, the, the day of atonement where you go and you sprinkle some blood of a goat on the altar and it somehow makes for atonement for the sins of the people, but it doesn't, not really. And even in this moment, which seems so divorced from that, so divorced from the life of Israel and the religious story of their people and their, their journey out of slavery and, 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 and their struggle and, their, and their, 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 their nomadic existence and all of that seems somehow distanced and yet somehow when he makes that cry, his death cry, 
The temple shakes and breaks apart, and that curtain that somehow separated the place where people could not enter, except for one person, one time a year, is ripped apart, demolished by his voice, opened for us. And I think we're meant to presume that he entered that holy place that day and sprinkled his own blood on that altar, sprinkled his own blood once and for all so that it never had to be done again, never, ha- never would have to be done again. And once and for all, our sins were atoned for. Is that weakness? Is that strength? This kind of love, you see, is both vulnerable and triumphant. It is both weak and strong. Finally, this kind of love has something to do with the entrusting of our soul's care, our spirit, to the Father. What is it that he cries out in that, that, that great expression of power? He cries out, take my spirit. I give, I put my spirit into your hands. This is cruciform love. You know what, guys? Your body, in one sense, gets entrusted. We are, we're missionary people. This is our script for how to love the world, actually. It's how to be in the world is to love this way, to lay our lives down for people, to get the crap beat out of us, by people for love to not look to get back at them to not always have to be right to forgive to see the pain of other people even when we're in pain this is our script and yet I know that that means your body is going to be pummeled at times so how do we survive? How do we make it? How do we get through it? We get through it the same way he got through it. We have to entrust our spirit to the Father. Look, there is a part of you which cannot be damaged by other people. Do you understand that? Your body can be harmed by other people, by disease. Cancer might come for you. Something else. But your spirit, that thing inside of you which is renewed daily in the knowledge of Jesus, which is somehow intricately and intimately connected to him and who he is, that thing, that spirit is supposed to be his and entrusted only to him. And if you will do that, as Jesus does in this moment, you can survive anything. And that too is love. That too is love. kept thinking about um, I'm almost done by the way I know you're antsy would you feel better if I invited up the worship team is that is that yeah um, yeah come on up guys come on up just, just make them feel better
I'll skip that. The final thing this love does really is save sinners, saves us. This perfect love, this expression of perfect love, rescues the world from judgment. That's, that's, that's what happens on this day. We no longer have to stand before God covered with our own sin, guilty and unredeemable. Now somehow, because of Him, because of His righteousness, we can be forgiven, pure, whole. And when we love this way, when you love this way, you are rehearsing this thing that happened for us. You're remembering it. You're dramatizing it for the world. So there is no actual way to be a missionary, not really a Jesus-following missionary. There's no way to be either effective or to see the kingdom come without this kind of love being offered. There's no way. A self-serving, self-demanding, self-prospering love does not bring the kingdom of God. But this, we can't die for people's sins. Our blood cannot be sprinkled on that altar as atonement for the human race. That's already been done. And even if it hadn't been done, you are not a perfect sacrifice. Your, your death cannot do that. But because of Jesus and because we belong to Jesus and because He, he is the one we worship and because the greatest way in which we worship is by imitating Him, that every time we love like this, every time we, we don't need to be right, every time we, we are open to correction, every time we, we, we love even though we're in pain, He is somehow revealed again to the world. This story is somehow revealed again in your life, in your choice. And you have to understand, that's, that's strong, that's powerful, that's potent, that's otherworldly, that's supernatural, that's what ushers in the kingdom. It's like the gospel exists inside of us every time we love each other this way. It's why Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, he said, look, will you just please make my joy complete love each other? When the whole world will know that you are my disciples and that I sent you. And he said this, and that the Father has sent me. They'll know, the whole world will know that the Father sent me if you love each other. This way. This way. I read the story of a guy called Billy Moore was on death row for a contract killing in Georgia. And while he was on death row, facing obviously his eminent death, you don't get off death row, do you understand that? Death row is bad, that's the end. Um, while he was on death row, someone shared the story of Jesus, the gospel, with him. And he was, he'd never heard it, and his life was changed. He was like that thief on the cross. And he said yes, and because he said yes, something began to change inside him. He was transformed by this relationship on death row with Jesus. So profoundly was he changed and transformed that people began to come to him. They called him the peacemaker in the prison. And he began to have this kind of influence, and his, his cell block was the safest. People would come to him for counseling. 
In fact, his, his renown as a peacemaker and a counselor became so uh, far known that churches, even outside the penitentiary, would send people in to be counseled by him. They'd say, oh, we need help with this thing. They'd say, we know just the guy, and they'd give him the address of, the, of death row. Do you understand? Death row. Go see Billy Moore. He built a relationship because this is part of what the gospel does and this is what love looks like is he began to build a relationship with the family of the man he had killed. And he built such, such reconciliation happened between this man on death row for killing their family member. Such profound transformation happened that they began to see him as a part of their family. They loved him with all of their hearts. So much so that there came a moment where they got him in front of a judge and they kept writing petitions and they kept saying, we want you to commute his sentence. We don't want him to die. His friendship circle grew so large that on the day that he was supposed to have this hearing for whether or not to commute his sentence, 50 of this man's family members got on buses and came to this courtroom to testify, please, we love Billy. He is like a member of our family. Don't take another member of our family. And the piece of testimony which really did it, Billy Moore had also built a relationship with a Jesuit priest. And that Jesuit priest was personal friends with Mother Teresa. And so he called Mother Teresa and told, him Billy's, told her Billy's story. And Mother Teresa called that judge on the day. Imagine that. You get a call from Mother Teresa... And she's telling you, here's what you need to do. I know you're a judge and everything, but I'm Mother Teresa. You may have heard of me. I'm Mother Teresa. And she said, you need to, you need to commute his sentence. And so this judge, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a cruciform story, isn't it? It's the righteousness of Mother Teresa is given to this murderer. She becomes an advocate. Her goodness becomes an advocate in his brokenness. And so this judge does what he only could do. He said, yes, I will commute your sentence to life. And because his sentence was then commuted to life, he then had a certain amount of time served. I think he served another... 10 years or something like that, and then he was released. I think he's the only living person to ever be off of death row. To be not wrongfully accused and then, and then exonerated, but somebody who was like guilty and put on death row and now somehow is alive and in the world. And he, I think he, he leads a church. What are, the, what, are those, what are those family members doing? What was Mother Teresa doing? You know what they were doing? They were, they were, they cannot die for him, but they could show this judge cruciform love, and they did. It doesn't just save him. It saves all the people. It touches all the people. It releases all the people that Billy Moore would then go on to love. That's who we are. We're all murderers and adulterers. We're all slobs and sinners and fools. And if you don't know that, just look closer. Get your closest friends together to do an intervention and tell you just how jacked up you are. But if you do, if you're like me, and I think you are, you know, 
you know. And this is the good news, the best news. Don't weep for me, Jesus said. I know what I'm doing. Only weep for yourselves. Because if you live alone in this judgment, you have no hope for you. But if, if you will see and receive this love for you, and then be someone that loves that way in the world. Guys, we're talking about the kingdom coming. Just bow your heads as we come to the table again. This is obviously the place we should end. Because on that night he was betrayed, the day before he would die. He took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. And within 24 hours, they would break his body. And he would let them. And it would be given for you and me. And he said, this cup is my blood. A new covenant. Shed for the forgiveness of sin, and on that next day he would bleed for you and me. And I just don't know of one single thing that's ever happened in the human race which has meant more for us. No single time which was more important than this moment. And guys, I want you to experience it again this morning. There's nowhere to be, there's nothing, no, nowhere more important to go than this table right now. To just bask in this great love that he has for you. And maybe again to come to the table and as we take these elements and as we take them back into our bodies and say, this makes me whole, this makes me who I am, this releases me from the power of sin and death and darkness. And then to be sent, even as you walk away from the table, to feel strength entering your body, to go back again to the places where he's called you, to love, really love the people he wants you to love, to lay down your life. And so, guys, this is a really sacred moment, and I just want you to take your time. Take your time. Elders will come up, take these elements. There's, there's tables on the sides. There will be tables up front. But we are not in a hurry right now. We are not in a hurry right now. You take your time. You interact with God. You hear what He wants to say to you. And when you're ready, when your heart is ready, when you've examined yourself, I want you to come again to this table like it's the first time. Like it's the first time. 